You're listening to The Film File, the film podcast for film geeks, by film geeks. Yep, your favourite podcast is back. It never really went away. Or did it? Da-da-da. Yes, this is The Film File, and I'm Lee Ford, and just take it easy with him. Don't give him a lot of pressure. Don't upset him in any way. Just be, just be gentle, because Andy Meakin is also here, and Andy has something to say. Andy's no longer the chosen one. Andy can no longer <laughs> walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no COVID, because Andy, during his week's holiday, has got COVID. Yes. Yeah, you joined the club. It, it, it's a common thing for me whenever I've got a week off work that I feel run down, I get a cold. I feel, and I, I started off thinking, I've got the cold. I've got a cold again. And then my sense of taste went halfway through. Well, I say halfway through. I wasn't halfway through the tub of Pringles. The wife had got halfway through the tub of Pringles before I got to them. And a paprika ones, which are normally quite strong. And I just went, well, there's no, no flavor on these. And ate another one. It's like, no, there's definitely no, oh, there's no, there's no taste buds in my mouth. And that's when it twigged that, hang on, you've probably got COVID, mate. So uh, did a test. And yes, I've joined the two-line club. Yay. Yay. So, uh, yeah, we've all been there. So I, I mean, wow, it hit me for a six. Absolute. I mean, even though I'm completely jabbed, I had one day where I was just unable to do anything. I was a coughing, spluttering mess with no sense of smell, no sense of taste, uh, no energy. Just cla- like flopping down on the couch and having no motivation or inspiration to do anything and feeling miserable. Temperature was high. I was sweating like a beast. Uh, I'm, I'm better now. I'm over that bit. I've still got a bit of a cough. Uh, my taste buds are starting to detect things again. But I'm just exhausted. I've Yeah, I've that's, that's so the bit much. I remember. I'm absolutely uh, exhausted. Not to, not to upset you even further with that, but but that lasted months for me. Oh, and I'll I, I tell you, interestingly enough, I was listening to the couple of deep dive episodes that you put out the other week, and there was uh, uh, one of the episodes was a, a post-COVID episode, so after after I'd had COVID the first time. And I noticed that I'm, I'm very wheezy. On yeah. It. And uh, I noticed when I do the rock show for No Barriers Radio that, again, I'm quite wheezy, and that wasn't there. In old episodes so yeah it, it's knocked all my plans this week for a six because yeah well it's almost two weeks that have got got off in total and i had plans for so many things including as we said last week at the show at the show i was going to play catch up on all the films and talk about all those films that we've missed out on sorry guys i've not had a chance to do that yet <laughs> so hopefully for next week because I, I booked out me i booked out my tickets over the past couple of days and then i had to cancel my bookings because i just can't move can't go anywhere. I'm intending to start getting back to watching things tomorrow, but I have watched a few, fair few things at home. I've I've just done nothing except for sit on the couch and either watch TV shows, watch some films on TV, or play on video games. Which I just I, this was going to be my neat thing, but I've got a different neat thing, so I'm going to spoil this one now and just say PlayStation Plus Premium launched this past week, and that's the one thing that's got me through the peak of COVID all the wealth of games that I've been able to download and play, including Miles Morales' Spider-Man, which I've not bought yet, so I can now play it via that um, streaming thing. I bought myself an extended internal hard drive for my PlayStation 5. I fitted that and felt so proud of myself for doing something so technical. You know, it's the small things in life that make things worthwhile at the moment. And I'm absolutely loving... I'm loving going back and playing things like the old Toy Story game from the PlayStation 1, 
which has the worst control system that I've ever, ever used. But but I'm determined to beat it because I used to be able to complete this game. Great service. Was going to be a neat thing, but it's the one thing that's getting me through COVID. So I've linked it in with me COVID. Your, your dreams now of being the immortal like the Highlander, <laughs> impervious to any sort of infection and, and being immortal. It, it's out of the window, mate, I'm afraid. It's gone. That's it. I'm well, no at least you know you're, you're part of a select few. Well, um, actually, an interesting point is how big of a population have had the old COVID now. It definitely seems to be making a bit of a comeback. Apparently, after the Jubilee, there has been a rise. I know we've got to live with it. I just also think there should be announcements when things like that happen that we can just sort of, you know, watch us back a little bit again. Yeah. Make it make it up to the individual. It doesn't have to be Logan's run and state-inspired, but, you know, I'd, I'd rather know if it's, if it's going to be bad out there and I, it's up to me to make that choice. Well, at the same time that I announced that I've got COVID, Adam Ant announced that he's got COVID and cancelled his run of gigs. I was supposed to be going to see him last week, but he had to oh, cancel right. the gig and obviously I couldn't get to see it. And sadly, the rescheduled date that they've got for it, I can't make because I'll be down south. So oh, no. uh, really, this is the second rescheduling of that gig and I was really looking forward to it. But my mates seeing if um, one of his mates wants to join him and they're going to buy the tickets off me. So I hope they enjoy the evening. But really gutting oh that is a shame but yeah on the flip side i've lost a lot of weight <laughs> you have and when we we started uh recording i looked at you on the screen and went you know you're looking a lot different you're looking svelte <laughs> yeah um i've not weighed myself for at least two months maybe up to three months yeah i i, I always joke on the show that i'm not the most felt of people you know last last week when um you were saying about you, you where you are in the hotel, you could probably parkour across to the cinema. And I was like, you've seen the size of me. I can't parkour. Well, turns out I probably could, the way way that I'm going. I've always been around about 17 and a half to 18 stone over the past about five or six years. I'm now on 15, right. 50, just over 15 stone, 15 one. Two stone I've lost, which I wasn't even trying to lose weight. And what is the secret of your success? Well, I think 80-hour working weeks and living <laughs> off porridge and pot noodles has probably not helped. <laughs> you will find, as of next episode, we will be sponsored by pot noodles. <laughs> and uh, Quaker And also porridge. get Andy's uh, Film Geek <laughs> diet book, which will be available in all good bookstores uh, as soon as this program's done. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean... I, I, I'm feeling, I mean, aside from feeling exhausted, I'm feeling kind of healthier, except my pants feel very loose and uh, I need to get a tighter belt, which is not good. All my clothes I've bought <laughs> for my old figure. And now I'm just going to look like, <laughs> I'm just going to look like an absolute tramp. <laughs> just get a bit of rope, tie it around your jeans. It's a fashion well, statement. But yeah, I mean, I've shaved, shaved my hair off and shaved my beard off. So I always look slightly slimmer anyway, but I look a lot more skeletal. Like Lex Luthor. What I've used oh, to. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> more Skeletor. I'm, I'm, and I was yeah, thinking, thinking more Skeletor. <laughs> I'll get you, He-Man. <laughs> it's good to have you back. And just do your best throughout the show, because I can do the talking for the both of us if need be. <laughs> and it's going to feel like that when it comes to our review section, because in this week's show, do we have, well, an awful lot of reviews. Andy's going to be talking about... Uh, the Man from Toronto, Paranormal Activity Next of Kin, and Spiderhead. And steady yourself, folks. I will be talking about Elvis and the Black Phone. Uh -huh. And this week's deep dive is Robert Rodriguez's From Dusk Till Dawn. But before any of that, of course, the real reason that you tune in, and that is this week's news brought to you from our affiliate with COVID. So, as ever, we start our new section by talking about 
the box office. So two big releases this week. I'm assuming we've still got Jurassic Park casting its prehistoric shadow over the charts. I'm pretty much guessing Top Gun Maverick is still in there and perhaps Doctor Strange. But interestingly, I want to know what's happened to Lightyear. Andy, what's the box office? So over in the US, it was a close battle for that top spot. Elvis managing to snag it with 31.2 million. But Top Gun Maverick only just behind it on 29.6 million. And still close behind that, Jurassic World Dominion scrapes in another 26.7 million. With Black Phone, the 18 million costing film, already taking 23.6 million at the US box office. Lightyear struggling to retain a place in the top five, just about keeping a position there with 18.2 million. Here in the UK, Elvis again tops the box office, taking 4 million this weekend, with Jurassic World Dominion taking 3.4 million. Top Gun drops to third place with 3.37 million. Lightyear holding in in fourth place with 2.3 million. And Doctor Strange still managing to get some business with 169,000 taken this weekend, despite the fact it's already on streaming on Disney+. Elvis's opening weekend has already garnered 51 million worldwide so far. Jurassic World is now up to 748.8 million. Pretty strong contender, despite the critical panning it's been getting. The Black Phone has already taken worldwide 36.6 million, doubling its budget in its opening weekend. Lightyear seriously underperforming worldwide with 153 million not very strong for a pixar animated outing but might have something to do with the marketing causing too much confusion as to what it was actually going to be all about but the big success this weekend is definitely top gun maverick which after five weeks has now passed one billion at the worldwide box office so we've got minions this week and the next big drop because i'm thinking the world is maybe a little bit over minions by now (laughs) kind of moved on so the next big drop is thor love and thunder and uh, speculation on that was probably starting the reviews have been good i've seen some uh, very positive reviews for it so um that's going to be a serious contender for the number one box office in two weeks time because i I think you said andy it's the seventh when it when that lands yep thursday the seventh it gets released in the uk right so it's a So we've got just over a week of Jurassic and Maverick dominating the box office, basically, before audiences will get distracted by some Marvel. So that's the box office. What have we got news-wise? What have you got for us? Uh, Even through the entanglements of COVID, Andy, you've still managed to be the news hound, (laughs) sniffing out the stories across the world. Couldn't smell anything, but um, I was sniffing out the stories. You're sniffing, (laughs) but you weren't smelling. (laughs) Well, more casting for June 2 came along this week. Leia Sadu is going to play Margot, who's a long-standing member of the Benny Jesuit sisterhood who's married to a mentat count and um, she's not a huge character in the stories very minor but she is important especially with regards to fade rofa who's played by austin butler who she's after the genetic genetic material of because he's considered one of the perfect humans filming begins shortly and they're still targeting that october 2023 release date and i just you know my feelings can't on wait june. can we really yeah my my feelings on june itself are huge anyway and I'm loving every bit of casting. I'm loving that they're expanding out the the le- like this character is a lesser character, but they're giving everyone a bit of emphasis and a bit of a reason to be in there and really expanding it out. Can't wait. Can't wait. Uh, I'm assuming then this character didn't make it into David Lynch's uh, uh, storyline. No, she didn't even make it into the TV series adaptation for sci-fi. Aspects of her characterization were given to Princess Evelyn in the TV series, but in Lynch's Lynch's version, there was so many things excised out, and I'd still love to see 
his alleged four-hour cut that was out there to see exactly what was missing. But yeah, it's so uh, for film audiences, this is a character who they've never encountered before and don't know anything of. Right. What um, else do we have? Uh, oh, I've got. I know. I've got a little bit of news just before you jump in. Last week we mentioned about Game of Thrones uh, spin-off series with uh, about Jon Snow, and now we've got a working title for the show, which isn't Jon Snow Private Eye or Jon Snow PI or even Snow PI. It is, in fact. <laughs> just snow you can't get much clearer than that really can you we know nothing about the show anyway uh we just know that it's going to be set after game of thrones please let it be a pi show that <laughs> your, your obsession with that is as bad as my obsession with barbie <laughs> uh, Nic- nicole kidman javier bardem john lithgow and nathan lane are joining in the animated musical spellbound for skydance and apple and um, kidman and bardem will voice elsmere and solon the queen and king of lumbria they're the parents of the lead character, Princess Elian, who's voiced by Rachel Zegler, who sets out on a daring quest to save her family and kingdom after a mysterious spell transforms them into monsters and threatens to cover Lumbria in darkness. Um, Lithgow is going to play Minister Bolinar. Lane will play the Oracles of the Sun and Moon. And Jennifer Lewis will voice Minister Nazra, Nazara Prone. Um, Jordan Fisher and Andre de Shields also lend their voices. And it's being directed by Vicky Jensen and written by Lauren Hynek. It's an animated movie coming from Apple and Skydance. You know, you know I'm there. You know I'm there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, count me in. Sounds intriguing. Now, are you in for... We know that Kevin Costner likes doing long films whenever he makes direct audio. He does. Um, I think I think Dances with Wolves is a superb film. I never saw the director's cut because I thought it was, was perfect. One of those occasions with the release version. The Postman, I didn't have a lot of time for. But Open Range, I think, is, is a brilliant, brilliant Western. And it was a shame that he... he didn't go back to westerns after that i know it didn't particularly do well at the box office but it was a superb superb western well he's returning to westerns well that's good news and for his fourth directorial feature effort the western which is called horizon is also going to become his fifth sixth and seventh effort as well because it is this is a story that he can't just fit into one film is this an intended uh, netflix amazon prime job or is it a cinema release um, it's a Warner Brothers and New Line cinema project, which begins production at the end of August. It's being planned as an interconnected four-film saga with each of the nearly three-hour films to release around three months apart. Um, he's been attending the UK launch of Paramount Plus this week and talking to the press, which is where he broke the news of all this. They're all different films that all connect, so you're watching a saga of these storylines that are happening. He's confirmed that okay. casting is underway as he's trying to fill 170 speaking roles that span the project. This is his first directorial project since the aforementioned open range in 2003. That's how far wow. back it's been since he last directed. Have you seen it, Andy? Have you seen Open Range? I have, yes. It's such a good film. I, th- I think we might have to deep dive in at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to go back to it because uh, I, I was... I was so blown away when I saw it. I've always wanted to go back to it and and that would give me a perfect opportunity to see it again. The story of this, of Horizon, is going to span 15 years in the settlement of America's western frontier and it will focus on the settlers as well as the indigenous groups that first occupied the land. Costa said that the project was sold as 
an event television movie. But in terms of release strategy, it's up to the studio. It is words. What the studio does with it will really be up to them because things change really quickly in how people want to see things and what they want to do. I'm happiest because at one point in TV where you can get your largest audience, they're going to get to see it the way I intended it to be seen. It will eventually be cut up into hour-long episodes or 42 minutes, however TV works. But the first viewing of it will be as four two-hour and 45-minute movies. And every three months, one of them will come out. If you're interested in those characters, the hope is you'll really want to watch the next one, but it won't be in our segments. It sounds like, a, it sounds like an interesting return to Westerns for him in such a huge epic scale that he's happy for distribution in whatever way, shape or form, which is very rare for any director in this day and age. Yeah, I mean, he does make his films very cheaply. I know Postman was one of those films that, that went over budget, but he is known for, for making cheaply and on time. And uh, um, I say Dance with Wolves is, is is a classic, classic movie, which he didn't spend an awful lot of money on. So he has he has form for that. I'm, I'm in. I like Kevin Costner, the director. I like Kevin Costner, the actor. Yeah. Uh, I, I, we've not seen enough of him. Last time was what? Oh, yeah, that film, uh, Man of Steel. Yeah. I'm thinking I've not seen anything from there. But I, I think he's a great screen presence. It's, it's a shame we're not seeing more of him on the screen. Yep. I'm, I'm going to take you back now to the 1970s, Andy, to a time before all of this newfangled madness of being able to watch films on some streaming services. Nay, the word streaming was only meant when you went down the woods and went paddling. Back to the days of innocence when Planet of the Apes came on TV as a regular TV series and we all went ape crazy again. So much so that Marvel Comics Marvel Comics launched their comic adaptation of all the movies. And we even had in this country a weekly Planet of the Apes comic. Now that Disney have bought 20th Century Fox, Marvel Comics have announced the release of a new omnibus collecting those classic stories. And I know it's more comics than it is uh, Planet of the Apes, but I am so in. This is my childhood being revisited. Yeah, not just Planet of the Apes, but loads of comic book series were made of TV shows and films back in the 70s and early 80s. I've got my comic book adaptation of David Lynch's Dune. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, Bill Sinkovich drew it, didn't he, for, um, for yep. Marvel? I've got uh, 2000, 2010 Odyssey 2. Um, yeah. I, I, used, I used to collect all of these spin-offs of movies logan's run comic series i've yeah, got some issues well, of that in, well, what they used to do is when they got the rights to it they do the adaptation and then they go off and do their own stories yeah they, they did it with star wars and star wars yep. ran and ran uh, and built up its own canon within the comics um planet of the apes did it had a, a great run um they've also got alien and they've got predator because of them buying up 20th Century Fox. so Marvel have already been dabbling into the Alien franchise with their new um, Alien comic book series over the past couple of years, which yeah. is actually pretty good. Oh, uh, is it? I've not, I've not got around to reading it. Yeah, they're tapping into the lore quite well and managing to do something slightly fresh and unique with aspects of it as well. So it's worth checking out. They had a couple of problems with their Predator run, which is now launched due to some sort of rights issue to do with the original writers. Yeah. But now there is a, a Predator series out there. But I am very very intrigued by planet of the apes and i'd like to see if when they release these collected editions are they going to go back to the original original artwork and uh, mm. it'll just take me back to my childhood yeah i never never picked up the planet of the apes comic but i remember being aware of it and wanting to get it but my mum never bought it so uh, this is my chance to uh, rectify that mistake mistake that my mum made by not buying me the planet of the apes in comic book format on to all the childish things 
And I know you're going to be really excited for this because you're you're a huge fan of the franchise. I'm also a big child. The Spy okay. Kids reboot. <laughs> you you built me up there. I was excited. <laughs> I was I was cooking with gas, and then you 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 went and spoiled it. I'm kind of excited about it. I've I've got a bit of love for the Spy Kids franchise, but the reboot mm. is plowing ahead. Zachary Levi from Shazam, Gina Rodriguez, Jane the Virgin, Everly Carganilla, the After Party. And uh, newcomer Connor Esterson are set to star as the new family at the heart of the reboot for Netflix, Skydance and Spyglass. Robert Rodriguez will co-write, direct and produce the next film, which will introduce the whole new family of spies. Racer Max also co-writes the script and produces. In the new film, the children of the world's greatest secret agents unwittingly help a powerful game developer unleash a computer virus that gives them control of all technology, leading them to become spies themselves to save their parents and the world. That old chestnut. David Ellison, Dana Goldberg, Elizabeth Avellan and Don Granger are producing. Fans of the original films... Yeah, I'm a fan of the original films. I was drawn to the original films because of the presence of Antonio Banderas, Carlo Gugino, and they collectively grossed more than $550 million worldwide whilst being made, as Rodriguez does, on a discount budget. So is there room for Spy Kids in this new world? Maybe on Netflix. Maybe it'll be something, a bit of family fun on Netflix that you won't want to watch. Here's a question for you, Andy. Is there room in this old world? to reboot The Green Hornet. Well, if you remember that there was a film in 2011 with Seth Rogen yeah, um... in it. Evan Goldberg um, adapted it alongside Seth Rogen. And it, it was okay, but it lacked something. It had great visual style, but it was then forced out in 3D and the 3D transfer was dreadful and kind of broke some of it. Well, yes, there's still room to remake it again and tap back into it. And Lee Wannell, who gave us The Invisible Man an upgrade, two cracking films is in negotiations to direct the green hornet and cato for universal pictures interesting because all right i'm intrigued and, and i'm all for it uh, there was talk for a long time of an animated series from kevin smith which was going to borrow heavily from batman the animated series but is the green hornet one of those characters that other than comic geeks does anyone really care anybody really want to see and has the has there been enough time since the last green hornet movie to kind of restart and, and find new audiences to be fair with how few how few people actually turned up to the last green hornet movie i don't think people are aware he existed to be honest with you so um i think i think it's potentially in safe waters especially if if they keep the budget modest if they don't go over the top with it and keep it modest they can they can really have fun with it and maybe deliver audiences something that they don't know that they want, but it turns out that they do. The script has come from David Coop, who okay. polished it so up earlier this year. So it's 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 in really good hands. Lee Wannell and David Coop working together. That's enough to give me confidence that this could be something which would work. I think that the last interpretation in 2011, you could tell that Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, Goldberg had worked on it because it played a bit too jokey when it could have played a bit a bit more grounded. And whilst Rogan and Goldberg have gone on to make TV series adapted from comics and done really good success with them, looking at you, the boys, looking at Preacher, I think when it came to film, they just couldn't quite tap into it. I'd like to see a Green Hornet and Kato done well on the big screen. I, th I think that this is good hands to be able to do it. Keep the budget low, though. Don't go overboard because then the studio will interfere and that will work where it go all wrong. Keep the budget yeah, low yeah. and allow the creatives to just have fun with it. And this could be a big success for 
Universal. Yeah, because the director the first time around was Michael Gondre, who was a very, very visual director. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it, it wasn't bad. It just didn't quite work for numerous reasons. That's not to, to damn it with faint praise. I think I had a good enough time with it, but ultimately it, it wasn't a, a, a big winner. So I'm interested to see it. I would rather see this go to Netflix or, or Amazon and watch it that way than a than a big screen outing because I think it will get lost personally yeah. I don't think there's enough people that know the Green Hornet and it's it's one of those which it's an executive's dream you know we talked about He-Man on the big screen and all those sorts of things I think yeah it's it's not oh, you can always say that Iron Man came along and nobody knew who Iron Man was but it, it, I guess it might be in the casting before that really sort of raises its bar what else do we have Andy well on the subject of reboots the Mortal Kombat reboot of uh, 2021 proved to be quite a success both on streaming and even made 83 million at the box office right in the height of the pandemic. Uh, so the sequel was ordered, which made me very happy. Moon Knight and Umbrella Academy creator Jeremy Slater has taken over on the script. Okay. And it's still in the development stage, but Slater has recently spoke to Discussing Film about writing the follow-up and expressed his enthusiasm for the project and how they've taken in the feedback from the last film to make adjustments in this. In his words, the Mortal Kombat sequel is awesome. I'm having a ton of fun. I can't really share any details about it, but we want to make something that the fans really love. And I think that's really great creative team. They've been listening to the fans' reactions and they know what the fans loved about the first movie and what they didn't. Everyone is creatively setting out to really make a sequel that tops the original in every way. We're still very early in the process, but fans should be really excited. It's going to be awesome. So he's not given us anything there, but he's got people yeah. like me who are clamoring for this sequel and absolutely adore the Mortal Kombat franchise, starting to speculate as to where they're going to go. They've listened to the fans, so they've listened to all the fan theories and what, what there's going to be. So is Johnny Cage going to be introduced into it? Is Sub-Zero going to turn into Noob Cybot? I don't know. And I can see your face just went blank when I said that. Because I did. I, I was nothing completely got distracted by I don't, everything else. There's so much lore and history. And one of the things that the fans said with that last version is that as much as we enjoyed it, we didn't get the inclusion of a brand new character when there's such a wealth of characters out there. So right. hopefully it's going to lean more into the characters that we know from the games and not have this unnecessary additional creation to try to draw audiences in. So I'm keeping my eyes on this. I absolutely adore the Mortal Kombat franchise. I don't adore all the films. The second film was terrible, but I've got a lot of time for any stories told within that world. I know that you are a big A24 fan. I am. So you'll be pleased to know that A24 are developing a thriller called A Different Man, that is going to star Sebastian Stan and Renee Reinsev. It's going to be written and directed by Aaron Schimberg, and Stan will play Edward, somewhat of an outsider who undergoes drastic facial reconstructive surgery in attempt at getting a fresh start in life. That doesn't quite, and of course this is A24, so it's not going to go to plan. When he becomes obsessed with a man starring as him in a stage production, of his former life. It sounds very A24. This is one of the reasons why I gravitate around A24 films is they'll take something which initially the concept sounds, oh, we've seen this before. And then there's always that little uniqueness in there that makes you go, oh, actually, this is a different approach to something. Um, they've got a certain style of film and always feels like low budget and very indie and uh, creator-led projects as well. It ne they never feel like studio films, even though you can kind of tell an A24 film when you're watching it. I also think it's interesting to see how 
Sebastian Stan's career has moved on as well mm. and some of the choices that he's making. Did you ever get to see Fresh? I didn't see Fresh, no. Ah, well worth watching. I don't know why I never reviewed it. Maybe we could go back to it and uh, we both get to watch it. But anyway, that's the latest offering from A24. You know when you have those days when you're convinced that you forgot something and... Oh, every day. You rack, you rack your brain no, and, and no, then we... like, you know, weeks or months later, you suddenly remember. Well, turns out that Taika Waititi has some of them because... Oh, right. Ages ago, there was announcement about his Samoan soccer movie, Next Girl Wins, that was sp- supposed oh, to be coming yeah, out, that... which had Michael Fassbender, Elizabeth Moss, Reese Darby and Will Arnett. And... It turns out the reason why it's not being released yet is he kind of forgot about it. <laughs> okay, like you do. He was speaking recently with Vanity Fair's Little Golden Men Awards podcast, and he says the film was shot just before the pandemic, and it's been sitting on the shelf for some time due to both world circumstances and his own hectic schedule. In his words, I was doing Thor. I was also editing my soccer movie that everyone forgot about, including myself. I was like, oh, that's right. I was making a soccer movie. And there was a year where I didn't even watch that film. It just sat on ice. Now, he didn't go into any reasons for the shelving. One likely one is that the movie had Army Hammer in it in a supporting role. His role got recast and scenes were reshot with Arnott, which is last time that we reported on this film was when those reshoots were getting made last year. Another is possibly the distributors likely wanted a theatrical release for it. Waititi's become quite a big name for some reason or other. Waititi has said of the movie, it's finished and it's good. We've been testing it. People love the film. Uh, Footage from the film was recently screened at CinemaCon in Europe and reportedly went over very, very well with the crowd. Searchlight holds distribution rights and so we should expect to see a release date for this crop up sometime soon. Oh, anything by uh, Taiki Watiti, we're always interested. And he's coming back to Mandalorian 3, which has been announced as well. Zac Efron, last time we saw him was in Firestarter. And if you want to know what we thought about Firestarter, go back and check out an earlier episode. But he's starring... And he's kind of doing this. He's doing the sort of crowd pleasers and then he'll go off and do something that he wants to do. But he's starring in a wrestling drama, The Iron Claw. And also just about to start shooting. If anyone cares, if anyone's still interested, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. I completely forgot that there was a second film, to be honest with you. Yeah, I saw the first one. Um, Didn't think you needed a second one, but apparently there needs to be a third one. First one was palatable. Yeah, I'll say it's palatable. It It just wasn't me. Yeah, well, you're not big, fat old Greek. Yeah, that's that's probably it, really. (laughs) Kevin Feige has confirmed that the Marvel Studios are going to return to Hall H at San Diego Comic Con next month. After a several-year absence, they've not made any announcements at Comic-Con in the past, well, most of the past decade. Um, he revealed this news during a press conference for Thor Love and Thunder this week. And it's expected that if they're going back to the hall, they've got some big announcements to be made on. Well, let the fan speculation happen, because Feige is keeping everything close to his chest. Yes, you could. it might be Secret Wars. It could be the future of all the TV shows. It could be the casting decisions for Fantastic Four. It could be anything. We don't know at this point in time. Let's just wait until next month when we're no doubt going to have a whole episode of the show devoted to what Marvel covers at San Diego Comic Con. On the other side of Marvel. On the other side? Yes, the Sony side. Now, we know that Venom films have have not been that great. And we know that Morbius has been an absolute joke. <laughs> oh, you've been, you've, you've been so sensitive about it. Tell it like it is. Morbius has been a complete joke. Not only did it flop at the box <laughs> office once, but it flopped twice because they thought that people wanted to watch it because of a Twitter campaign. <laughs> well, we don't. We know that the Craven the Hunter film with Aaron Taylor-Johnson is in the pipeline to come out next year. Taylor-Johnson has described the character as one of Marvel's most iconic, notorious anti-heroes. Spider-Man's number one rival. He's not an alien or a wizard. He's just a hunter, a human with conviction. 
an animal lover and protector of the natural world. He's a very, very cool character. Hang on a minute. Craven the Hunter is an animal lover and a protector of the natural world. Has he been reading the wrong comic books? <laughs> Let's let me let me get something off my chest right now. We've talked about my dislike of, of the Sony side of things and, and your dislike. And I think this is where the problem lies with saturation of, of superheroes. And, and clearly this idea that Sony have is to take secondary characters, villains, because they've got the rights to them and, and you know, give them a leading role. But this also gives this thing that all villains can somehow be redeemed. And that's not what villains are about. No. If you do a Doctor Doom movie, you can't have a, a redeeming Doctor Doom movie. You've got to have Doctor Doom wanting to take over the world and be nefarious. So you don't redeem these characters. This is the problem I have with them. Craven is a hunter. Make him make him a villain of the piece. And it worked with it worked with Joker. So why can't yeah. you do that with Craven? And and that's one thing I've got to say in favor of Obi-Wan. At no point did they pander and try to reboot itself by not trying to redeem Anakin Skywalker. He went in and he killed a bunch of kids. Yeah. And therefore he is evil. And that's what happens when you go to the dark side of the force. And I thought it was very bold that they, they could have gone back and he didn't kill those kids and those younglings rather, but he did. And, and they stuck with that. And so there's none of that, oh, Darth Vader can be redeemed. No, no, no. He's a heart is black. And let's keep our villains villains because it makes the heroes more interesting because you can't now have Craven as a big game hunter fight, fight Spider-Man in any of the sequels. It's bizarre how they're tapping into all the villain characters and trying to make them into anti-heroes and give them like, you know, something to... Oh, well, they're, they're trying to do the right thing. When they have got the rights to a variety of Spider-Man hero characters that they've still mm. not done anything with. Even even you could take the ambiguous nature of Silver Sable, who's yeah. basically a mercenary. She could be a hero character. She would have her own film. And that's been touted for ages. Black Cat. If you want, yeah. if you want a, a villain character who's actually got a, a, de a decent moral compass at times, the Black Cat is perfect. But instead... They're tapping into the Sinister Six and trying to make them the not-so-Sinister Six. And I just don't get yeah. it. I don't get it at all. This I'm is not you. Craven for me. I think Aaron Taylor-Johnson's great casting, but how he's described that character, that's it. I'm out. I'm done with this film. We'll see it, more than likely, but we'll be done with it as well. Yeah, I suffered Morbius. I'll suffer anything. <laughs> um, the Furiosa prequel is channeling ahead. Filming is well underway, and a synopsis has now emerged via Collider for the film, which offers some details as where it's going to sit in the overall Mad Max saga. The synopsis reads, As the world fell, young Furiosa is snatched from the green place of many mothers and falls into the hands of a great biker horde led by the warlord Dementus. Sweeping through the wasteland, they come across the citadel presided over by the Immortan Joe. While the two tyrants war for dominance, Furiosa must survive many trials as she puts together the means to find her way home. I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'd rather have seen Shalise Theron's character than going back and, and, and starting from the get-go. The main problem yeah. when you go back and do these prequel movies is there's no sense of tension that you a, a character is not going to make it. We knew that Obi-Wan would make it through the series. I mean, of course it would. We also knew that Leia would, would make it through the series. So it does take away that element of these characters are in danger. We know that she's, she will survive. And, and there is the only thing that, that could happen to her that is really, really bad is she loses an arm. How she yeah. lost the arm, is that enough for a story? I would have much rather have seen Shalise Theron. Now, not to say that I'm not giddy about this because George Miller always makes me giddy. 
I'm always intrigued in what he's got to do. But I would like to see Charlize Theron carry on with, with the role that she's made iconic. I might be Mr. Grumpy today, am I? No, yeah, I think I think you're spot on. Is the, It would have been nice to have seen Charlize Theron character after the events of Fiori Road, you know, taking us somewhere that we've not seen and have that potential peril that will she survive. But I've got confidence in Miller as well. Yeah, every one of the Mad Max films has delivered something unique and special. And Fury Road was just stunning. So if it can tap into any aspects of that, well, May 24th, 2024 is the date that we're looking to um, sit down and watch some carnage on the screen. And it will be carnage. That's one thing we can certainly look forward to. Uh, two last bits of quick news. The first one is that James Cameron's Titanic is going to get a release at cinemas again to celebrate the 25th anniversary, because of course it is. It's going to have a 3D, 4K, HDR and high frame rate makeover. And it still won't make me go again. No. They could play in my living room, the theatrical version, with songs, and I still wouldn't be interested in it. The re-release will be unrolled internationally from February the 10th next year. Paramount Pictures has US domestic rights to the re-release, and is expected to also set its date in the coming days. And last bit of news, after many, many decades, thrilling us and wowing us with moments of music on film that are iconic, that sit with you forever, and that instantly throw you back into the films. The 90-year-old legend that is John Williams has announced that he's possibly going to consider retirement after he's completed work on the upcoming Indiana Jones film. What a legacy of work. I mean, yes, clearly you're going to go for the Spielberg-George Lucas relationship, but you can go right back to his, his TV stuff. One of my favourite soundtracks that he did was for the Elliot Gould Robert Altman film, The Long Goodbye, which is a fantastic score that just keeps repeating in different ways. Mm. A, a, a nightclub singer sings the song. Somebody plays it in a bar. There's even a, an up-tempo version on the radio. It's it's a brilliant, brilliant score. And of course, then we get to uh, the, the the stuff he's more well-known for. I mean, my favourite all-time John Williams score is, is, is Superman the movie. I think it's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. But the yeah. guy no, deserves to retire and go out on a high, I suppose, with a bit of luck on the last Indiana Jones movie, which seems the most appropriate place for him to to leave it all behind. Every piece of his music throughout, throughout my life has resonated. The Superman soundtrack, like you said, is possibly one of his finest. Obviously, there's the Star Wars themes that he did. Jaws, his subtlety, creating such a chilling cello-based piece to just really it make it does the work it doesn't it does the work for the shark yeah uh, then you got me you know we've spoke about it in a deep dive 1941 and i thought that yeah. his bombastic uh, militaristic theme there was perfect for the slapstick comedy nature um and then one of my favorites is is always going to be et i hear the et theme and i almost break down in tears just remembering the moments in the film and the joy that right. it brought me that's the one that really stands out for me but everything that he's done as always always lent well to the films so whether he does retire i mean he, ha he hasn't ruled out sticking around but he has pointed out that if he gets given another star wars film that's six months of his life taken up and he can't really dedicate so much time to things these days but he might stop around and like help compose things or he might just get inspired to bring a new theme to something he doesn't know but he said that maybe it's time that he steps away and uh you know, I basically can rest on the his man models, deserves the rest. as far as I'm concerned. He deserves a rest. Absolute legend. And that is this week's The News. Still with us, still a part of the film file, still a part of the family. Yes, Vin, we are all 
family. If you want to know more about The Film File, then you can check out all The Film File previous episodes by going to your favourite podcast platform and checking out The Film File. Become a subscriber where you can get up-to-the-date episodes. As they are released, they will land and ready to go. Find out more about The Film File. Yes, there is more to find out by checking us out via these online services. Over on Twitter, you can find us at Filmfile UK. Other social media platforms, just search for Filmfile UK. We tend to pop up here, there and everywhere, wherever I, on a whim, create a new account. Or you can get in touch with us directly via email. Yes, we still use email. We'd actually use written mail, but we haven't got a PO box number to put it into. Podcast at Filmfile.uk. We love to hear from any of you. Send us thoughts on the show. Send us thoughts on films that we discuss. Send us thoughts on films that we've not discussed that you want us to discuss. We're always happy to hear from any of you guys out there, even Adam Sandler fans. Especially Adam Sandler fans. We want to know why. Adam Sandler, the, com- the, the, the actor, is fine. Adam Sandler, the comedian, maybe not so much. It's now time for this week's Deep Dive. We're going to take you back to 1996. We're going to take you back to a story of the Gecko Brothers. We're going to take you back to a script written by Quentin Tarantino. We're going to take you back from dusk till dawn. For two of America's most dangerous criminals. Now, do you understand the meaning of the words low profile? One night is all that stands between them and freedom. This is my kind of place. But it's going to be one hell of a night. From Robert Rodriguez. From Quentin Tarantino. Welcome to slavery. No thanks. I already have a wife. From dusk till dawn. Directed by Robert Rodriguez. Written by Quentin Tarantino, from a story by Robert Kurtzman. The film follows the Gecko Brothers as they are on the run from the Texas police and the FBI after a crime spree through the Southwest. Soon they found themselves drawn into battle with a gang of bloodthirsty vampires. This is the 1996 American action horror film directed by Robert Rodriguez, written by Quentin Tarantino, starring George Clooney, Harvey Keitel, Juliette Lewis, and a very early appearance from Salma Hayek. This is certainly a film of two halves. Starts out and we're in regular Tarantino territory, goes into, well, who would have thought it? Blood-sucking vampires, Mayan myths, a downright dirty bar, and a whole lot of fun. And you know what? This is what I do like about From Dust Till Dawn. It is a whole lot of fun. It established, more so than anything else he'd done, George Clooney as a cinematic leading man. And also proved Quentin Tarantino really can't act. But none of that matters when you're having such a good time. I mean, I think the comment about Tarantino not being able to act is fair. But <laughs> I, I thought you were to undermine me then. But I think this film is the one that his lack of acting ability almost works in. Because the character of Richie that he plays is unhinged and sees reality in a different way and he's clearly schizophrenic. And so his really bad acting abilities just comes off as another weird edge of Richie. And I think he's benefited immensely by being buddied up with George Clooney, who George Clooney was a huge name on TV at the time. He was on ER. He was everyone's crush male or female, on ER as the rather suave Dr. Doug Ross. And so when he came to the big screen, people thought, hey, he's going to be smooth, he's going to be charming. He plays so against type, but in a cool and charming way. He's not a nice character. He's an awful, awful human being. But he's so cool. He's kind of Steve McQueen cool in this, I think. Yeah. Because they tried to make him into into a big star, and it seemed the obvious route to go into cinema. 
uh, with Peacemaker, um, not the yep. DC series, but a, a DreamWorks helmed thriller. And of course, there was Batman and Robin. But this is the film more than anything else, which meant that you could you could get the Clooney coolness and, and, and play him against type. And I, I an still edge. think it's one of my, my favourite of his more mainstream roles. I think he's, he's absolutely superb in this. And this is a film that, like you say, it's a film basically of two halves. The first half introducing the Gecko Brothers on the run after the heist, they're fleeing for the border, leaving a wave of death and destruction in their wake. Richie, unhinged, seeing the world very differently to everyone else, is causing even more mayhem and kidnapping. And they end up using a pastor and his family. Um, the pastor plays by Harvey Keitel, named Jacob. And Keitel's character is experiences, experiencing a lack of faith. And the sudden, sudden shift towards the family at that point in the film, before they're both introduced. It's like, where are they going with this? It's typical Tarantino that he layers multiple elements of story together and then brings them crashing together. And having these criminals suddenly tagged on and being helped across the border by a pastor and his family gives a bit more, a bit more of an edgy dynamic to it. And then they get to the strip bar known as the Titty Twister. And that's when things go south real fast and it turns into a full-on vampire assault for the last half of the film. The first half of the film had nothing to do with vampires. There's not even a hint, is there? There's not even that little not teaser at the beginning of the film that makes you think, this is where potentially it's going to go. It's a completely different film. It feels like a normal Tarantino heist movie gone wrong. And then when it shifts, well, I kind of feel that I, I lost out somewhat because I knew that it was going to be a vampire film because I'm so immersed into film lore and film literature that every magazine was covering it and saying it yeah. was a vampire movie. So I was waiting for the vampires. And I have I thought it was common knowledge. But even when I went to see it, one of my buddies who I went to see it with didn't expect that twist, didn't expect it to shift. And since then, I've encountered so many people who had no idea that oh, Dusk really? Dawn was a vampire film. And they say that when it gets to that midpoint, it blew them away. And I'm just like, well, it kind of blew me away for how fun it was. And they're like, no, no, no. I just didn't expect it. It's like, you didn't think there was vampires in Dusk Till Dawn. No, I thought it was just a crime drama. I, I'm baffled at that. But I also feel that in a way, I've missed out in not having that complete rug pulled away and being right. completely surprised by how bonkers it goes. I mean, this is a fun film. This is immense And it does fun. go bonkers. It really does go over the top to the point of sometimes downright silly, but but never so much that it becomes a pastiche. It just becomes becomes ridiculous fun. This this is this is Tarantino and Rodriguez showcasing their love of grindhouse cinema because this is a throwback to grindhouse style of filmmaking, uh, which they then tried to follow up a few like a decade later with the grindhouse movies to lesser effect. But this is a great grindhouse movie that the pair worked on. It, it, it's you've mentioned the main cast. I mean, the main cast are all great. You know, even Tarantino who can't act. The contacting works for him here. Clooney is charismatic, charming. Keitel is as cracking as ever. Juliette Lewis was on quite a high at this point in her career. Uh, she was popping up left, right and centre with things like Cape Fear, etc., showcasing what she can do. And she's really, really shines in quite a central role. But then you've got the support cast. And it's a support cast padded out either with Rodriguez's mates or with people who Tarantino obviously loves from all the films that he used to watch. So you've got D Danny Trecco, you've got Michael Parks in the opening scene 
in a role that surprisingly became a recurring one, despite the fact the character got killed. John Saxon pops up on a news report. Cheech Marin is in there. Salma Hayek, as you've mentioned, is playing the dancer Santanico Pandemonium. She'd worked with Rodriguez on Desperado the year before. And, you know, this was the start of her career. This was the films that put her on the map. And then you've got the special effects legend Tom Savini as Sex Machine. Yes, a character named Sex Machine. And a film with a character called Sex Machine. If you're not having fun watching it, then you're seriously watching the wrong film. So this film was conceived by Robert Kurtzman. Who are you going to say? Who's Robert Kurtzman? Well, if you don't know him for his name, then you certainly will have seen his work. A special effects makeup artist, responsible, probably most memorably at the moment, for Walking Dead. We create every week creates different looking zombies. He hired Tarantino to write the script as his first paid writing assignment. Universal Pictures originally considered the screenplay from Dust Till Dawn as a follow-up to Demon Knight, which was part of their proposed Tales from the Crypt trilogy, but ultimately produced another vampire film instead, Bordello of Blood. And then it landed into Buddy Robert Rodriguez's hands and the rest is history. The film went to Miramax, which at that point was the biggest indie producer in the world. Uh, despite everything that's happened, they had quite a lot of, of very cool movies coming out. Uh, and did, even despite kind of mixed critical response, this did very well. Uh, so much so that there have been a series of sequels and quite recently a TV series. But it's from Dust Till Dawn, which showcases the most of the imagination because it is just the perfect balancing act of Rodriguez and Tarantino working in tandem. Need to get a shout out to the type of music used within the film. Texas Blues plays prominently. You've got Stevie Ray, ZZ Top, and also Tito and Tarantula, who appear in the film as a vampiric rock band, packing out some cracking music that makes for a, a well, well-listened-to um, soundtrack album. I've got the soundtrack album in my CD collection behind me. I've had it since the film came out. One of the first things I did after I watched this film is like, I need that soundtrack album. Went to HMV, picked it up, and it gets listened to so frequently. Uh, it, like you say, there was a sequel and a prequel, Texas Blood Money and Hangman's Daughter, that were made. Texas Blood Money's not bad. Hangman's Daughter, unnecessary. The TV series of recent years, I thought, was an interesting take. Yeah, of course. Because it... particularly season one basically retold all the events of the film dust till dawn but expanded them out around all the aztec mythology and added in some extra characters and some lore and some history and grew the story i mean the opening episode even has the same setup in the convenience store with them holding people hostage while a lawman comes in and starts like asking questions and includes you know, the cracking lines of dialogue that, you know, they're not delivered as well. But Clooney's lines of dialogue in this are so iconic that they couldn't not have them in the TV series. It's not a bad TV series. The second season kind of lost its foot and then it got cancelled after that. But it was an it was a nice attempt to expand it out a bit better. But this original film, re-watching that this week, and this is a film, this isn't like the most recent deep dives where it's been it's been two decades since the last watch this. This is something that gets watched every year or two by me. I love this film. And every time I watch it, I still laugh, I still thrill, and I still feel the chills um, in the more sinister. And the sinister moments are not when the vampires are attacking. The sinister moments are that first hour as the pastor is held, basically held hostage by the Gecko Brothers. And it's the tensions between those characters that give the sinister aspects. Once you get to the vampire stuff, it's just fun. It's just bonkers. You've got vampires getting staked on table legs by an upside down table and just flop them all on there. You've got everyone having fun with it. 
You've got Tom Savini absolutely enjoying himself. A whale of a time, isn't he, on this Oh, he's clearly loving every aspect of his character. And as he starts to turn into a vampire, he's hilarious as he's trying to hide his vampire mannerisms from everyone else. It's a it's a blast of a film. If you've never seen Dust Till Dawn, and if you're one of these people who didn't know that it was vampire film, sorry, we've just spoiled it for you, but it was common knowledge at the time. I don't know how <laughs> yeah. people haven't realised this, but it's a great, a great film of two directors early in their game who combined together and they'd worked together on briefly on Desperado because Tarantino had a small role on Desperado. Him and Rodriguez are really good mates and you can see that they played against each other and played off each other while making this and it makes for quite an interesting film. It makes for quite an interesting two films to be honest with you but both mashed together in perfection. If you want to watch From Dust Till Dawn, if you haven't done so, you want to revisit it, where can you find it, Andy? If you want to get it on a streaming service, Paramount Plus is the one to go looking for. If you don't have a subscription to that, then you can find it quite cheap to rent on all streaming services from £2.49 upwards, or you can buy it from £5.99 upwards. And it's well worth checking out. Maybe don't bother too much with the sequels, but definitely give From Dust Till Dawn a watch for the first time or to revisit, because this is a film that you can have immense fun going back to and watching over and over. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So, because Andy has been on his sickbed, he's not left the house, that's fallen to me to try and catch up with the slack of all the films that are out there. But Andy has been firmly planted onto the sofa and having to watch films some of us should have, but Andy's bitten that bullet, even though he's been sick. So the first film is one that's been out a few weeks that we didn't get round to watching, and that's Joseph Kaczynski's Spiderhead. Which we were both very excited for. The Spiderhead. We're proud of our work. Your presence in this facility, while technically punishment, is privilege. Let's do this. We're making the world a better place. In science, we have to explore the unknown. Beautiful people get away with too much, and I say that having benefited myself from time to time. Based on a short story from George Saunders and written by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, surely with those names involved, nothing could go wrong. State-of-the-art prison in which a captives have agreed to be part of a pharmaceutical drugs trial. Spiderhead is overseen by the affable and hospitable Steve Abnesty, played by Chris Hemsworth. However, something is rotten at the core of the programme, and Jeff, played by Miles Teller, begins to get suspicious as to what Steve's motives actually are. Now, this is a cracking-looking film, as you'd expect from Kaczynski. It's acted so well. Hemsworth is having so much fun in a constantly smiling, charming but warped individual leading this programme. And there's some great ideas in there. However, unfortunately, it doesn't quite work. The opening act is brilliant. It sets enough questions, it sows the seeds, it gets you intrigued. And the final act is an absolute manic finale, which pays off quite well. But it's that middle section that sags, it's bogged down, it doesn't know what it's doing with itself. And I was almost almost close to just giving up halfway through because I just wasn't feeling it during that middle act. I'm glad I stuck around to the end because I think it just about salvaged it. But what could have been a great 45-minute Black Mirror episode is instead turned into 107 minutes 
of a too stretched out short story. It's a shame. Great names. Worth watching, but don't expect much. Interestingly enough, I think some of the problems that film seems to have, which is this short story element, is apparent in the film I'm going to be reviewing first, which is The Black Phone. Would you like to see a magic trick? Tell me your name. Taylor. Alan is really starting to like you. Finny. I almost let you go. Directed by Scott Derrickson, who is probably best known for the first Doctor Strange movie and the rather fantastic Sinister in which he teams up once again with that star, Ethan Hawke. Um, This is a supernatural chiller that is at some points almost a nostalgia piece. It's a film that combines conventional horror themes in the case of a masked child uh, murderer known as the Grabber, played fully and terrifyingly almost inhabited by Ethan Hawke and supernatural elements. The backdrop is blue-collar Denver in the late 1970s, and it's evoked through an almost uh, a sepia, nicotine, uh, bleached-out kind of colour palette that gives it a sense that the 70s were a memory. And I think from what I've read, uh, this plays into why Scott Derrickson wanted to to, uh, make this movie. Mason Thames is the lead, who is fantastic. He plays Finney and his sister Gwen, played again by another marvellous child actor, Madeleine McGraw, live in fear of two things. Their father, who is recovering from the loss of his wife, is an alcoholic and uh, slips into violence with his kids. And then there is the grabber, a mysterious man behind a string of child abductions. When Finney is taken by the grabber, he's thrown into a cellar and we know because his fate awaits him through a disconnected phone in the room that links him to previous victims, each with a crucial hint on how they think he can escape. So uh, while I did enjoy this, it's based on a short story by Joe Hill, better known as the son of Stephen King. It does suffer from being a short story punched out into a, a, a much larger film. And so therefore there are elements of it that kind of, well, not quite drag, but feel like filler. Because the tight little storyline of what's happening to Finney within the basement is at times terrifying and chilling. But we get these extended dream sequences that Gwen, who has the ability, like her, a late mother, to manifest psychic abilities within dreams. And we get lots of backstories to to some of the other kids who've disappeared. It has some real jump scares, some of those elements which throw you completely. But it kind of meanders to get that. Now, you could say that Derrickson tries to do something different with the ghost story formula and in that he proves that he does but ultimately it just feels a little bit slight even with an hour and 40 running time did I enjoy it yes I did enjoy it Ethan Hawke is absolutely fantastic and for most of the film you do not even get to see his face it's really one of those performances where he inhabits the the character that he's playing Uh, the kids are great absolutely phenomenal but while I enjoyed it some great scares. It's not the film that I was hoping for. Being a fan of both Scott Derrickson and Joe Hill, this felt as though all the elements were there. It was just too slight a film to have them working on all cylinders. So back to you. Well, let's stick with horror and paranormal activity. Next of Kin was on my radar this week. Yes, 
We are grateful to have our sister Margot return to us. here now the most recent in the paranormal activity series feels like a totally different script was retrofitted to shoehorn into the franchise even though it was series regular scribe christopher landon who penned it it follows margot who was abandoned by her mother as a baby as she documents reconnecting with her past taking a documentary crew to a Pennsylvanian farm where her Amish family originated from. Jacob, the patriarch of the community and Margot's grandfather, welcomes them and agrees to speak on camera about Sarah, Margot's mother. Over the days, as Margot reconnects with her ancestry, strange disturbances start to play out and disturbing mysteries are uncovered. Now, this is possibly the laziest entry in the Paranormal Activity series of films. And that's saying a lot. That is saying a lot. And the links to any of the preceding films are tenuous at best. It's uncertain whether it wants to be found footage or standard film. It tries to play off the different approaches with a line about them making a serious documentary, which doesn't quite explain the positioning of some cameras at times. The events that play out are tired and cliched, so much now that none of the shocks actually work, despite the irritating insertion of loud noises at jump-scared moments, as though they're aware that the scares themselves are quite trite. This is one of those horror films of a franchise that even though it was low budget and probably would have scraped back its budget at the box office, it's probably better suited to go straight to streaming, where it can just be buried and left to rot. Now, we've heard that the original creator, Oren Pelly, is coming back for the next Paranormal Activity film, which they're intending to be a complete reboot of the series. I can only hope that he manages to bring something back to the franchise that it's lacked since the second film, as far as I'm concerned. I've stuck around with these films because each one has had something to intrigue me, but this is the only one that I got through the whole thing and thought there was literally nothing in there that bothered me one way, shape or form. Andy, you ever seen one of those films that the more you think about it, the more it, it leaves a deeper impression on you? That when you watch it, you kind of enjoy it, but it stays with you and kind of haunts you a little bit. Quite frequently, yeah. There's there's quite a few films that I've walked out of the cinema and thought, I enjoyed that. And then within a, a 24 hours, I'm like, actually, I want to see that again. And then a week later, it's like, I think I've just seen one of the best films of the year. I won't say this is the best film of the year, but I, it has made an impression and it has stayed with me. And, and out of the two films that I saw literally back to back, this is the film that left me thinking about it much, much more than the other one. And that is Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. I believe I can be great. Wise if you dream it, you'll do it. Only for I just gotta be making the most of this thing while I can. This could all be over in a flash. I love you. And your daughter loves you. We just want you to be happy. I will always love you. So what do we know about a Baz Luhrmann film? Everything is turned up to number 11. Why have two edits when 500 will do? Why have a scene that has to jump to slow motion halfway through and we see it repeated in different camera angles? If you like Baz Luhrmann, then you are going to like Elvis. It's a kinetic musical madness of a film. It captures all the elements of all of his films. Moulin Rouge, the kind of irreverence of, of, of The Great Gatsby. Almost, I would hint at the Shakespearean tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. 
if you think of uh, Falstaff and Prince Hal in those roles instead of Romeo and Juliet. And it's got that, that craziness, that ambition of his film, Australia. This is an audacious piece of work, a, a kaleidoscope biopic of the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. It features absolutely electrifying performances from Austin Butler, who we are used to seeing in sort of kids' movies as Elvis from teenager to the age of 42, and Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker. And this is a film that is visually dynamite. This is almost a little bit like Amadeus, in which Salieri narrates the story. So we get a lot of the story from the perspective, and which makes it absolutely quite unique, of Colonel Tom Parker, as played by Hanks, who is what's known as a snowman. Somebody who's worked the carnivals, always looking for that next big thing that he can rip off an audience. And he finds that in the dynamic Elvis Presley, who's just a country boy who knows how to perform. And in that very, very first meeting of seeing Elvis on stage, Austin Butler transforms into Elvis Presley. Now, a lot's been said that he doesn't look like Elvis. That doesn't matter. It's the performance and the persona that he gets absolutely right he it it is a purely electrifying performance that makes you understand why elvis had such the effect on american teenagers but it's about the relationship between elvis and parker and parker is always on the edge of basically controlling his boy as he calls it uh right from the moment where the carnival hookster makes a deal on a ferris wheel that sounds too good to be true because ultimately it was too good to be true. Hanks is hidden behind a layer of prosthetics, but he still manages to shine through because you know what? It's Tom Hanks. Part Elmer Fudd, part Bella Lugosi Dracula. This is a character who has his claws into Elvis and knows how to manipulate him, sometimes replacing himself as Elvis's lost mom. There are still some faults with this movie, some of them being Baz Luhrmann. He's all about the show and sometimes forgets about the why. Uh, it's almost a little bit like listening to a, a, an Elvis Presley Greatest Hits album. And a lot of the film plays out like the greatest hits of Elvis's life. We get to see him as a young teenager. We get to look at the uh, 1968 comeback special. And then the other big set piece is the Vegas years. But there's a confidence in this. The only thing that I've, I felt that was lacking is I, I didn't understand. I still couldn't walk away is why Elvis trusted Colonel Tom Parker so much, even though uh, he was clearly nefarious, clearly up to no good. What hold did he have on Elvis? But as I said, this is an electrifying film. There are other people who've played Elvis. Let's not forget Kurt Russell in John Carpenter's film, Elvis, Rob Youngblood in Elvis and the Colonel, and even uh, the great Bruce Campbell in the completely bonkers Boba Hotep. But this is the defining performance. It purely is a Baz Luhrmann film. Once you accept that, this is a film that is absolutely electrifying and will stay with you long after the curtain absolutely finally closes and that immortal line of Elvis has left the building. From the man from Memphis to the man from Toronto Ooh, with my final review of the week. Why in God's name were you in that cabin? They wanted me to be the guy that you guys are looking for, but I'm not that guy, but I had to act like I was. Oh, I want this They wanted me to torture the guy. I'll dig these goddamn thumbs in your eyes and I will love it! What's that? What'd I do? 
Our only way to find the man from Toronto is if you continue to be the man from Toronto. Hey, yo, Rusty, Rusty! The man that you're talking about is a, is a, is a real crazy person. One more time! Kills people, chops them up. Come on! Hola. I am the man from Toronto. Objection, no. I'm the man from Toronto. Oh, smoke! Ah! This is on you. Hey, yo, My clients think you're me, so you're gonna complete the mission, but you have no idea what I'm gonna do to you. Now, this is a film that we've had on our radar for a while. We've spoken about it in the news sections, and we were kind of like thinking this could work. Turns out it doesn't. This is the film that sees Kevin Hart team up with Woody Harrelson in an action comedy about a New York screw-up who's mistaken for the hitman, the man from Toronto, leading to the pair having to work together to complete an assignment. And from the start, the film struggles. It has a set-up premise that makes absolutely no sense. Teddy, played by Hart, ends up at the wrong cabin where the mistaken identity takes place because the toner in his printer was running out so he can't re read the address properly. So why doesn't he just look at the email on his phone instead? Because he refers to his phone quite frequently. This is a film that if it had been set in the 90s, this whole toner causing a mistake would have worked but when he's struggling to read something if you printed something off now you would go straight to your phone and go oh that's what it says and from that point onwards it just grated on me heart antics certainly don't charm me in this film Woody Harrelson is imposingly cool as ever but he doesn't have the chemistry with heart that say the rock has the rock has worked with heart on a few films that have been quite enjoyable central intelligence I had a lot of fun with because they've got a chemistry but that chemistry is lacking in this film. Action-wise, the film is packed with action, but none of it is anything that we haven't seen done before, better or too often. And despite a third-act action sequence that is well-staged and choreographed in a gym, the rest of it is underwhelming. This was planned as a cinema release by Sony, but it's not hard to see why they opted to distribute it via Netflix as part of the Netflix deal instead, because this would have just sunk at the box office it's got nothing that really would generate any buzz and it's immediately forgettable by the end of it one to avoid something that we've both seen is the very last episode of obi-wan kenobi do you want to go there now let's go there now turns out the whole series wasn't obi-wan it was a uh, <laughs> it was packed with force <laughs> so uh we finally got to episode six and for me, it's been a, an absolutely fun series. This is what can happen when you take the Star Wars mythos and do something absolutely unique with it. We've said many times before, this is a series that neither of us were particularly looking forward to, but it delivered on all counts. And for me, the last episode didn't let us down. It even did so much as to retcon one line in A New Hope that gave it a new perspective. Yeah, it did a lot of fan servicing, particularly in this last two episodes, but in a good way, in a way to rectify any of the, well, any of the mistakes that um, have been brought to the forefront through previous uh, adaptations and insertions into the timeline. Everything kind of fits better now in the Star Wars universe as a result of this series, which is something that I wasn't expecting to say. Uh, Ewan McGregor has been amazing throughout i have to say that yeah i i always thought he was a good obi-wan but he was never an alec guinness obi-wan but i think over this series he's become an alec guinness obi-wan he's brought gravitas to it hasn't he this time really has and it, it's it's testament to the storytelling that's gone on that it's allowed him to grow the character into what he should have been um, the seeing uh, hayden christensen reprise his role a few episodes ago and then you know, underneath the broken helmet, we got to see part of his scarred face as well. 
on the last episode. Great to have him as an actor. This was a chance for him to redeem a character that George Lucas sorely mishandled. Yeah. And didn't allow him to really showcase what he can do. Hayden Christensen gets uh, will get a lot more fans off the back of this because it's showing that he was just in the wrong hands when um, he was making those prequels. And my, my biggest standout from this whole series, though, has been the character of Reva. Now, we commented when we last spoke about the show that there was a lot of negativity online about the character, some of it very, very racist. Um, but there was also people saying she's just she's just she's just angry all the time. She's not got anything to her. And we we'd said there's like there's more to her than that. Backstory, that, I think I, it's called. I'd speculated that um she was not actually re- really hunting Obi-Wan. She was trying to use Obi-Wan to get close to Vader and take him out. And that turns out that what it was. And her character has grown and evolved. And though, though she still had the hatred, and you know she tried to then get her revenge on the son of Anakin Skywalker, she was going to try to kill young Luke Skywalker. But she started to realise that that would turn her into the very thing that made her the hate-filled character that she is. And now I can see the reason why they're talking about a spin-off series for that character, because I think there's a lot to explore in this. And this flashes back to us talking earlier about you take a villain character, but you give them something as a redemptive arc. And this is a well-handled redemptive arc. Yeah, This is something that, you know, there was a reason for this redemptive arc being there in the first place. She was a child who saw the rest of her friends in the academy chopped down and massacred around her. And that thrust her into darkness, but she's clawing the way out of darkness. And she has been brilliant in the role. She has been fantastic, especially over the last two episodes when she started to break that facade of anger and hatred. And the the humanity is starting to pour through. Absolutely brilliant. Yes. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed the last episode uh, without giving anything away, just in case you've not captured it. It was always hinted at where it was going to go with that last appearance. Uh, and and that paid off really, really nicely. And even if we don't get another series, and, and I hope we do, it felt well concluded, this particular chapter on Obi-Wan's life. And um, I would be interested in seeing uh, Ewan McGregor come back, uh, reprising this role, because as, as Andy said, he he's absolutely delivered. But if we don't, then this has been uh, the, the perfect bridge between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. It, it's fit in there absolutely perfectly. So that's what we've been watching. What is worth waiting for in the next week? So over at cinemas, well, I'll, I'll probably be skipping this one. Minions 2, Rise of Gru. This is a film that has been promised or threatened to be released at some point over the last four years. Every six months, it's got pushed back. I've got no time for the Minions films. It doesn't I'll, sound like the I'll studio does, one. does it really either, to be honest? No. Uh, whether it's going to find an audience in this day and age, we'll find out this week. Now TV and Sky, King Richard lands. So you get to see the film that allowed Will Smith to slap someone live on TV. Netflix, Stranger Things Season 4, Volume 2 lands this coming week. Fans of vampire films might like to uh, check out Underworld 1, 2, 3 and 4 that all land on Netflix this week. And A Day to Die, which is another Bruce Willis film that we've been waiting to be released, lands on Netflix. And this also stars Frank Grillo. So that gets me involved in wanting to watch it. Over on Amazon, you've got The Terminal List. Chris Pratt in a TV series based on the novel by Jack Carr about a Navy SEAL who returns home to find dark forces working against him and his loved ones. And that's quite a packed week for a variety of different reasons. Yeah, I've got that. And I've got season three of Umbrella Academy, which landed last Friday on Netflix. So, yep, busy week. Well, folks, 
from one busy week to a kind of an ending, the ending of this week's show. But before we go, and of course, no show would be complete without telling you about our neat things, stuff that we've liked, stuff we've enjoyed. Even Andy, COVIDed up, has managed to find something that he likes. Andy, what's this week's neat thing for you? So my neat thing this week, and I wasn't expecting to be so enamoured with it as I have become, but you might have picked up that a couple of the reviews that we've spoken about this week, I've watched on a particular um, streaming service. One of them was good, and one of them was an old classic, um, Dusseldorf. And that streaming service is Paramount Plus, which finally launched in the UK this week. And yes, we've been a bit, uh, do we need another streaming service? Uh, do we, Andy? Uh, is, the, is the too much? And whilst I still say that we don't need another streaming service, this is now dropped into that rotation that I have on Amazon. Because you can get Paramount Plus via Amazon Prime as one of its bolt-on packages. So it's now in amongst that rotation that every couple of months I'll swap out from MGM to Paramount Plus to Shudder to Stars and rotate it back around again. So I'm not going to spend any more, but I'll play binge watching whenever I get it. And Paramount Plus, yes, of course. What's the neat thing to do with this? Everything to do with Star Trek. It's the home of Star Trek. You've got the classic series. You've got the next generation. You've got all the movies. And you've got Strange New Worlds, which I have now seen the first three episodes of. And I'm and so envious. Boy, it's amazing. It is It is everything that I hoped it to be. And I'm not one of these um, gatekeeper Star Trek fans who says, Discovery's all woke, woke nonsense. I enjoy Discovery. I've enjoyed every season of Discovery. I've enjoyed Picard. I've enjoyed every aspect of Star Trek that has been delivered to some degree. But Strange New Worlds reminds me of my true love of Star Trek, which is the classic Trek. I love the original series more than anything else. And Strange New Worlds emulates the original series to perfection. It's episodic. It's got the same kind of, same kind of dynamic between the crew. It's just, everything about it looks great, looks polished and plays so well. And Anson Mount as Pike is so perfectly placed in amongst a quite diverse crew that I am loving. I can't wait to see how this series goes on. But Paramount Plus as well, as well as having that, I've noticed they've got a few other shows, Yellowstone's on there, which I've heard good things about. There's Yellow Jackets, which I've heard very good things yeah, about. Yeah, it was one of my neat out. things. And I've been going through Paramount Plus on Amazon and tagging things into my watch list. So I've now built up a huge watch list that will no doubt end up forming part of my neat things week on week for months to come at this rate. Uh, but at the moment, I'm also delving back through uh, films and I'm working through the Scream films because they're all on Paramount. There's such a wealth of material on there. There's quite a lot of films that we've spoken about in Deep Dives that I had to rent at some point. That If I had waited until now to do the Deep Dives, they'd be part of the rental. Copland is on there. I paid to rent that a few weeks ago so we could talk about it. Now I could have just watched it for free. Well worth checking out. You can get a seven-day trial and then cancel if you wish. But it's worth browsing through the listings on there just to see what kind of content it's got because I wasn't expecting it to launch with so much content. But they've done a really good job of this launch. And I'm... I'm going to be sticking with it for the next couple of months and then I'll probably switch my subscription to something else for a few months and then delve back to Paramount Plus when more Star Trek lands at some point. Well, you know how excited I've been for Strange New Worlds. So what I'm going to come and do is going to come and basically sit myself on your sofa while you're away and just watch it <laughs> um, and, and catch up with it. I, I, I don't think your wife will mind too much. Uh, you're away. 
doesn't matter. Um, my neat thing is also TV. And this is, okay, this is not going to be everybody's cup of tea. It's about a time and a place in the same way that Elvis was for some reason. And there's a connection between the two, which I'll explain. And mine is Pistol, which is the biopic series directed by Danny Boyle um, of the punk icons known as the Sex Pistols. And this is playing on Disney+. Plus. And firstly, I'm going to address the Disney+, Plus, where people have gone, how can you have a Sex Pistols program on Disney+, Plus? Um, because when it was done for the US, it was done for Hulu. It's as simple as that. Let's not try and think that it's some kind of watered-down version because it's on uh, Disney+, Plus. it's on Hulu, and therefore it's on the star section where they do have more adult uh, programming, looking at you, Pammy and Tommy, for instance. So this is a fast-paced, at times scrappy, and and that's meant to be because it almost has a as a throwback to the sort of hastily photocopied fanzines of the time. Directed by Danny Boyle, who directs all six episodes of the miniseries, and it basically dramatizes the rapid rise and fall of one of the UK's most influential bands, and and a band who put punk into British terminology, and that's the Sex Pistols. It's everything that you hoped it would be from Danny Boyle. It has that fidgety, uh, almost time capsule feel to it. At times, it's raucously comedic. At times, it's really, really poignant. At moments, it's a, it's a time capsule back to the 70s. And it's always interesting. Whether you like the Sex Pistols or not, they changed music in the UK forever. The idea that rock and roll could be dangerous again. The idea that anybody could get up and play as long as you knew three or four chords, which still resonates in modern music today, that never you don't have to be that virtuoso to be. It was about attitude. And it just captures the, the shambolic nature and the anarchic nature of the Sex Pistols, who were founded by guitarist Steve Jones, played by baby teeth uh, Toby Wallace, and it's a standout performance. And it develops through his point of view as he meets Anson Boone, who delivers uh, an absolutely compelling mesmeric performance as John Lydon, uh, later to be called Johnny Rotten. And we see how these shambolic people decided to get together and and put together what was going to be a game changer. At, at times, it's brutally honest. At times, it's ridiculously funny and chaotic. But hey, wasn't that punk rock? So my neat thing, if you get a chance to see it, if you're a fan of a certain period in music or you just want to go back and think, what was all this punk thing about? Go back and watch Pistols and you'll find that on Disney+. And that, folks, is us done for this particular week. We'll be back, as ever, again next week with a bit of luck with a brand new show, depending on how are you doing, Andy? Well, fingers crossed. Uh, I'm, I, I will still be here in Sheffield next Sunday. So we can maybe get a show recorded before I disappear back down south on the Monday. So uh, look after yourself, stay well. And if you try to run, I've got six little friends and they can all run faster than you. (laughs) 